1: Well, markets continue to sell off in even more uh, quantity, if you like. Now the S&P 500 is down 2% and oil is down more than 3%. 38.64 for a barrel of WTI, the perfect time to have on. John Kildoff of, again, capital. John, why is oil selling off so much today?
2: One two punch here today, Vani. Mm. Uh, we have uh, a sudden increase, if not full restoration looming for Libyans, Libya's oil production, they're going to be going up to as high as a million barrels a day, probably by the beginning of next month, if not sooner. They're already at um, around 600. And this all this news about the coronavirus outbreaks, um, particularly in Europe, where there were rumors in the market overnight of, uh, of France, Italy, and Spain going back to full lockdown, uh, just really crushed the sentiment uh, in the oil market. Because with, with that kind of news, with those kind of developments, you know, we're just not going to see the kind of rebound in passenger travel in cars and planes uh, anytime soon.
0: John, I know um, in chatting with you in the past, it's, it's all about supply and demand here. Everybody's got their supply models. Everyone has their demand models here. Do you have a sense of kind of what's really driving the narrative here? Is it more the con- a constrained outlook on demand that's keeping uh, oil where it is right here, or do you think there's an equally important supply discussion?
2: Well you know we've we've been stalemated obviously around the $40 a barrel mark for a good 6 months. So I mean the, the the arguments on both sides have been kind of fierce and like I said you know you know pushed to a stalemate. I think there was it was a growing sense of hopefulness in the oil market even as recently as a week or so ago uh, when we finally got a good gasoline demand number here in the US. First one that was near normal, unfortunately 9 million barrels a day. Unfortunately, we've fallen back again precipitously. And now with this uh, raised coronavirus uh, situation, um, the the sort of hopefulness has been snuffed out. And um, now we're gonna sort of have to hunker down again. We thought, look, the Northern hemisphere winter is the peak demand season on a global basis. All the heating fuels that you need um, to get through that. we I think there was a lot of sense in the market, a lot of hope in the market that that would help stabilize things and get us, get the market a bit higher. It's, given what we're seeing with the coronavirus, it's going to remove um, any of the additional demand that goes along with that. Now we've got to keep our fingers crossed and hope things get back to normal by next summer so that we can have a really strong driving season if, you, if you're looking for the uh, industry outlook to improve.
3: How
1: is it all messing with OPEC's plans, John? I mean, you know, I don't typically have feelings towards a cartel, but honestly, if there was any time to have a little bit of sympathy for the OPEC members, it would be now.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on that uh, view, Vani. Uh, I'm never really rooting for them myself, but um, <laughs> uh, and I'm never rooting for higher prices either. It's just that there's such a macabre sort of feeling. But you know, this this oil industry, who I have a lot of friends and know and and you know do like very much. I mean, it's been left for dead. Um, but this is this is this is a, a, a terrific uh, struggle for them. Um, you know, they've they've cut back. You know, really as much as they can stand to, especially a lot of the countries that are struggling, like Iraq. Um, who are dying to put more oil on the market, Russia to a lesser degree. And, you know, they were kind of counting their blessings as, uh, you know, rough as this might be to say, that that Libya was offline due to the civil war there. Now this sudden influx of another million barrels from Libya just really upends their calculus, and it's going to be a, a, a tough slog, particularly if that oil sticks, because that's very uh, valuable oil, very much desired in uh, in Central and in, in Western Europe, um, and it's it gets heavily marketed, so they're going to displace a lot of the other barrels that are that are in this market.
0: So, John, give us an update on the U.S. shale patch. How tough are conditions uh, down there out there?
2: I had one major oil CEO tell me this is the darkest period in the industry, you know, ever. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're struggling, and um, what you're seeing right now, though, is sort of the the seeds being sown to sort of rectify or, or, or reconstitute uh, what's happening there. You've seen several big mergers over the past two weeks right. now. Um, and, you know, you've seen a, a slew of bankruptcies. So uh, at some point here, the production, you know, is going to, has, it has already stabilized at, from a, from a, and down from a much higher level. And that's going to uh, feed into higher prices down the road here once things do recover.
1: John, if you were trying to trade this whole era in some way, is there a commodity that you'd buy or that you'd short?
2: If In the complex, if you want to talk about energy, yeah. the, the brightest star on the board right now is natural gas. Yeah, uh, There's a lot going for it there. LNG exports, for example, have really ramped up again to pre-pandemic levels. That's helping as has exports to Mexico. And um, again, here too, we've seen a decline in production and there's going to be more and more constrained supply, particularly if I think if we get a Biden administration, a lot of the associated gas that gets flared or what have you uh, is going to be curtailed. So that's the brightest uh, commodity on the board right now. Uh, Beyond that, I think you have to sort of take a look at um, diesel fuel, the heating oil contract here, uh, because one thing that has helped held up demand-wise is the over-the-road truck traffic. The jet fuel, no, but the over-the-road truck traffic uh, you know, is, is probably the closest to normal we have of the several major categories, that being gasoline, jet fuel, and diesel fuel.
0: John, you mentioned uh, potential uh, Biden uh, presidency. What are the folks that you talk to, what did, how do they think that would play out if that were to occur? What would that mean for the industry?
2: Uh, the sense is he won't be a complete disaster uh, for the drilling industry or, or the frackers for that matter. You know, it's, it's become too big of a deal uh, for the U.S. I mean, one of the things but i like to point out is that you know, it was the Obama administration that approved or, 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 and permitted the export of U.S. crude oil, which has climbed to like around 3 million barrels a day on average these days, which has been a huge right spot for the industry and really uh, is propping a lot of the uh, producers up Uh, it's been really helpful and China has stepped up we are now China's number four supplier uh, of of foreign crude oil so that's been a big development the problem is going to be for what I just talked about in terms of natural gas uh, the flaring um, and and the methane associated with fracking some of those wells but also too, what the Obama administration really went after were the refiners um, and and the emissions there, and obviously the, the cafe car fuel standards. So it's sort of that end of the operation, more downstream, that uh, will probably be pinched. But, you know, we are oversupplied in terms of refineries right now anyway, so um, they won't be missed.
1: Wow. It's an amazing state of affairs, isn't it, John? John, thank you. Always fascinating to speak with John Kildoff, right, Paul?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Really tough times for those uh, American shale producers.
1: It is a great pleasure now to welcome back to the program the CFO of Impossible Foods. David Lee joins us after another quarter of considerable effort and work. So David, talk to us about why you guys are doubling the size of your R&D team over the next 12
4: months. Well, simply put, our investment in research and development is our highest returning investment. It's the source of the innovation behind the Impossible Burger. You saw us launch 1.0 and then 2.0 Impossible Sausage. And now you're seeing us roll out in retail in Asia. Uh, really, innovation and technology is impossible Foods' source for growth. And that's why we're doubling down on it.
0: So, David, talk to us about how your business has been faring over this last seven, eight months during the, the pandemic, how, it's, uh, you know, how you guys have had to adapt. Well, we certainly, like
4: everyone else, has been watching headlines roll out seemingly every day about this global pandemic. And we certainly don't have a crystal ball. Um, But one thing that's clear is we're following where the meat eater is going to buy meat. You know, 90% of our consumers are hardcore meat eaters. The vast majority of our sales are being sourced by people who want meat. And as a result, we've had to adjust to where they're going, which is increasingly you know shipped direct to their home which is why we launched our direct to consumer business uh, as well as frankly in the grocery store you know our grocery business is now up 100x since the beginning of the year we're at 15,000 grocery locations across the united states and asia and, and we're still growing that business um, so we've really tried to meet the meat eater where they where they're buying
1: cool well talk to us about um the fact that you're not looking for meat eaters and you're also competing with many companies that are trying to do the same thing now, including plant-based
4: companies? Well, you know, what's interesting about Impossible Food is that our core customer is the meat eater. Our mission is only achieved if meat eaters like me and any others choose an impossible burger made entirely from plants versus the thing from an animal. Um, So as a result, our competition is kind of defined by our customer set. Our customers are meat eaters, and so our primary competition is meat. an animal which is a 1.7 plus trillion dollar global business there's plenty of room for great brands who are offering better products to compete so so we don't really worry about a lot of those other plant-based companies because it's a rising tide as long as the source of sales for example for us is from the meat-eater
0: so David are you finding similar consumer trends outside of the US I know you're in Canada groceries uh, you expanded into Hong Kong and Singapore? Are you finding similar trends or any differences?
4: You know, what's amazing about meat eaters is they love meat wherever they are. Um, they make it bespoke and totally relevant for their cuisine and their culture, whether they're in Singapore, or Hong Kong, Macau, Canada, or the US. Um, and so what we're seeing is because our products and possible beef made from plants in Asia, for example, really appeal to the meat eater. We're seeing the same phenomenal growth there as we see here in North America. You know, our business in Hong Kong, for example, is up 150 percent. It's uh, up 120 percent in Singapore. And, uh, and we're just getting going. So that's the thing about meat. It's nearly ubiquitous. And it transforms in the hands of one chef into a very different cuisine than in the hands of another. And I think we're the only plant-based company at Impossible Foods. That has a product that actually transforms. The Impossible Burger transforms in the hands of the chef to make it rare or well done or a bolognese or a dumpling or a bow. Uh, which is why we're excited about our global growth. What are your margins, David? Uh, well, one of the benefits of remaining private is I, I'm not yet in the business of disclosing quarterly results. Um, I can, can you tell, you tell you us this. if
1: you're profitable?
4: I can tell you that it's a strategic choice to invest in the business. We make money uh, on every unit that we make. Uh, and it's because we use a fraction of the resources of the incumbent industry. We just need scale to be at or below the cost of commodity ground beef. And, and people are willing to pay a bit more for our product because it has no cholesterol, less calories, you know, less fat, but all the protein and the impact you want on the world. Um, so, for now, I can just tell you that uh, we were designed to be cost competitive in addition to tasting great, uh, and we'll have to wait on specific figures uh, until later. When do you expect to go public? Well, we have not made any announcement to be public through a SPAC, DSPAC, which seems to be very fashionable these days, or right. through a direct listing or IPO. Um, but, you know, we've raised $1.5 billion of equity, and our investors, including CO2 and COSLA, uh, horizons. It, these investors are sophisticated. They expect us to be operating as if we're public anyway. Um, so it's a strategic choice. It's one that we're not choosing to make today, uh, but it remains an option for the company.
1: So curious as to why you brought up the word SPAC. <laughs> Did somebody <laughs> approach you?
4: Oh no, no. I, I read the headlines that you guys help write, and it, it's very clear we are all living in a SPAC bull market. Uh, and uh, as a result, as a as any as any financial professional would. I'm keeping abreast of these changing times. It's remarkable uh, how many announcements seem to be coming up every day about a new SPAC raised or a new SPAC de-SPAC consummated.
0: Hey, David, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. Always love to get an update on your fast-growing business. David Lee, CFO of Impossible Foods. It's interesting, Vani, the growth that they're seeing as a uh, target meat lovers um, I thought they would target, you know, folks that don't care for meat. But let's go to that big, big market. I would like to see the research transition.
1: on that, Paul. To be quite honest, I would like yeah. to see where they're where they're targeting meat lovers and why, and who told them to, and and what's the evidence that that's a better frame of reference than than plant-based lovers.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but interesting growth story there. It'll be an interesting IPO when it does come. <laughs> Well, a rough start to the week for financial markets here. Again, no visible movement on fiscal stimulus and the numbers on the pandemic around the world going in the wrong direction. Investors trying to discount those new bit those new items in the market. Let's get a sense of what's going on across markets. We can do that with Sarah Ponchek, Bloomberg Cross Asset Reporter Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here. Kind of, what's the feel this morning here um, as we start the week's trading? It seems obviously a risk-off feel. What do you what do you see in across markets?
5: Right, glad to be here. Certainly a risk-off feel, though. You look across the major averages. We have the S and P five hundred down nine tenths of a percent. The Dow down more than one percent. The Nasdaq, though, is your outperformer, flat on the morning. And as you mentioned. Investors are concerned with the resurgence of the virus. U.S. reported a record new cases for a second day, adding more than 85,000. We continue to see the resurgence in Europe with record cases in France and Italy. With that, we see the stay-at-home trade re-emerging, and that really asserting itself in the NASDAQ outperformance today. I'll highlight a few stocks. If I look at the best performers in the NASDAQ as we speak, zoom up. 3.9%. 3.9%. AMD higher, Amazon, DocuSign, Take-Two Interactive. These are some of your names that really have come to be known as your stay-at-home plays that stand to benefit in a quarantine, lockdown, restricted economy. At the same time, you look at your worst performers today in the S&P 500, many of your cruise lines, for example, Carnival, Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, all down more than 7% at the moment. So this trade is clearly filtering through the market as COVID nineteen just remains the number one story.
1: What really strikes me is oil back well below forty dollars a barrel. So we have C L One, which is, you know, WTI here in New York at thirty eight seventy a barrel.
5: Right. So WTI crude oil has really been lodged around that $40 a barrel mark. And when you think about oil prices this year, obviously the demand side of the equation is so significant, especially when we think about, I mean, I just mentioned cruise lines, but airlines too, if they are not resuming activity, the effect that that has on oil demand. At the same time, there have been some supply concerns too, but certainly a day like today when COVID-19 is really affecting markets, when investors are once again considering the fact that this is a true risk. It has certainly not gone away. There are possibilities that we may see further economic restrictions ahead. What does that mean for oil demand and taking a hit? We see WTI crude oil right now down 2.9 percent and Brent down 2.8 percent
0: too. Despite this risk off feel, Jack Ma's plowing ahead with his biggest IPO ever. Just extraordinary.
5: It is pretty unbelievable. Ant Group is set to raise about $34.5 billion through its IPOs both in Shanghai and in Hong Kong. So it's unbelievable going to outpace even Saudi Aramco. When you think about the value that this company is going to have, as Bloomberg highlights, once it goes public, it's expected to have a market value of $315 billion. So that is about the same valuation as JP Morgan and four times larger than Goldman Sachs. Imagine that. But consider the environment that we have Seen. Sure, I'm going to bring it back to the United States and we are not seeing an IPO in the U.S. for Ant Group. But if you look at the IPO ETF this year, so it's ticker IPO It is up 75% in 2020, a year that has been dominated by COVID-19 restrictions, a recession. uh, We have an election. There are many risks and uncertainties. The fact that you have newly public companies just soaring is really a sight to see. And to put that 75% in perspective for you that, since the IPO ETF has existed since 2014, is, would be the largest yearly gain. And 2019, 2017, those are your two other very strong years. Only gains, and I say only a little bit sarcastically, gains in the 30% range. Uh, so this would be more than double that.
1: We're also seeing other places where the virus is resurgent, lower. So the DAX in Germany down 2.8%, the CAC 40 down 1.1% in Europe. Not so much London, the FTSE 100 down just three tenths of a percent right now.
5: What really really weighing on German markets right now is SAP. So that German software giant SAP down more than 20% at the moment. And This isn't just a Euro, a German story. This really affects the outlook for equities around the globe. And I would argue that this is playing into the weakness that we are seeing today in the U.S. as well. What happened was they cut their full-year revenue estimates, and they also said that a fresh wave of lockdowns would hurt demand through the first half of 2021. Now, think about what we are expected to see for the earnings picture for companies in 2021. We're supposed to see a pickup. Again, we are supposed to see companies almost resume a sense of normalcy or at least be able to deal with the virus and get back on track. Well, SAP is saying that's not the case. They think that lockdowns are going to restrain demand and, and their business prospects into next year. And that makes you really think, well, does that mean the E in the P.E. ratio? Does it mean earnings need to come down for 2021, just as analysts are have started to really grow more optimistic?
0: It's interesting. We're going to get a lot of tech earnings this week too, Sarah.
5: Oh, yes, we are. It's it's This is the busiest week of earnings season. So we're entering the third week, $15 trillion worth of S&P 500 market cap report this week. And I'll give you a bit of the rundown. Tomorrow we'll have Microsoft... AMD. We'll also hear from Pfizer, Eli Lilly, Merck. Uh, Then Wednesday, we have MasterCard and Visa, very large companies as well. But Thursday is going to be quite the day after the bell. Facebook, Amazon, Apple and Google all at the same time.
1: (laughs) Wow. Sarah, you're going to be busy and we're going to see you back here again tomorrow. Sarah Ponzak, their cross asset reporter at Bloomberg News, covering everything from earnings to Chinese IPOs, to ETFs, to oil. She can just do it all. As we approach seasons where you typically spend a little bit more money, Black Friday, Halloween, Christmas, New Year's, let's get the retail take from somebody who knows a little bit about what's going on. Craig Johnson, CEO of Customer Growth Partners. So Craig, you know, every day we're reading about more and more retailers that are shutting down, going into bankruptcy, disappointing their creditors and so on. What is the story out there with with, with, with just retail in general, I suppose?
3: Well, uh, you have to realize that um, uh, retail has always been a a, um, a sector with ups and downs. And what happens when you're in a down mode, like we are uh, right now, um, uh, or a challenging mode, uh, the weaker players are going to get washed out. And that's what we're seeing. So the problem for many retailers is that over the past couple or three years, they failed to... uh, right-size uh, their store fleets with the demand. But now, for many weaker retailers financially, uh, this has been a forced right-sizing, which actually will leave the industry healthier. And for holidays, we're actually predicting that sales are going to be up 5.8%. Craig
0: really jumped out at me. I'm thinking just in a the- you know, the consumer here, we're still up 10% unemployment. We are the pandemic numbers going the wrong way in most of the country here. What's underpinning your, I guess I would say, surprisingly strong 5.8% increase year over year?
3: Well, uh, the, the difference now is is that the growth is not based on Uh, tapping into home equity or uh, charging up your credit cards the way it was some years ago whenever we saw strong retail growth. We're having very strong consumer fundamentals. And that's a robust 5.4% growth in disposable personal income. uh, Wages are up. Um, uh 11.5 new jobs have been created since the April nader of the, of the COVID recession. Uh, and household balance sheets are the healthiest in decades. The Fed's household debt service ratio is its record low ever, 8.7% versus 13% a few years ago. And personal savings rates are about 14%. So consumers have a lot of money, but basically it's like dry powder cash available for spending. Last but not least, is that you look at the most recent uh, um, uh, uh, retail sales period, which is the back-to-school period, which ended up a, a, few, a few weeks ago end of September, we had forecast that the back-to-school sales were going to be up seven excuse me, uh, going to be up 3.7 percent, and they ended up being up. Uh, 7.5%, double our already uh, optimistic forecast.
1: So the numbers
3: seem to be turning good.
1: Where are you getting the data for households and for for personal uh, spending and personal income and so on? It seems to me that, um, you know, I'm I'm sure there are plenty of households that have cash on hand out there, but is it a certain demographic that, that you're primarily looking at?
3: Well, it, it, this comes out of the, the Department of Commerce, the uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis, and uh, the personal income data and uh, the, the DPI data. Um, uh, and so those are the three. Well, so personal income in September
1: was down 2.7% and we're looking, or, or in August, I should say, it was it, down to...
3: That is a sequential. What we look at is the year-over-year. Year. Okay. Year-over-year year number is what, 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 what gets it, because retail works on a year-over-year basis uh it's measured that way comp sales are not comp versus the month prior of the carte of conference a year ago, so that it's the, it's the relevant numbers uh uh for that and the the, the fed's household service basically that's from that's from the federal reserve so um uh so cost, uh, households have money to spend now there is clearly a bifurcation between the hundred and fifty million people with jobs versus the eleven million people that don't have jobs. Uh, the folks, folks without jobs are spending only on needs, uh, whereas the people that have jobs are spending on both needs and wants. And, you know, obviously those, those, those folks are, are that, that segment, that large sector of the economy, uh, of the consumer economy, are what's driving the higher, higher forecast.
0: Hey, Craig, how concerned are you, do you think, or how concerned do you think uh, retailers are that it does not appear that we're going to get this uh, additional round of fiscal stimulus?
3: Um, well, our, our our forecast assumed that there would be the skinny package at some point uh, uh, um, before before holiday, and now whether that occurs or not, you know, we're 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 not certain. But that's why we our base case forecast of five point eight percent growth. We always bracket it with you know scenario analysis. Uh, that a high case scenario is 6.9 percent growth, and a low case is 3.5. So if there's absolutely no uh, 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 incoming uh, thing before the in- incoming federal aid before the end of the year, be- beyond normal unemployment, um, uh, uh, you'll have growth of the 3.5 percent, that lower forecast scenario.
1: Craig, 5.8 percent um, of that. Who who are you anticipating will go out of business between now and the end of the year?
3: Um, we're not certain there's going to be any new bankruptcies. We don't like to speculate on on bankruptcies. There's a number of uh, uh, of retailers that are that are challenged, you know, in the department store sector. Uh, Neiman Marcus is still going through its situation, um, uh, and in in apparel, uh, apparel and department stores are both still quite weak. Uh, sales. We predicted it down in the ballpark of ten, eleven percent year over year, mm. but I'm not convinced anybody else will go out. You know, with with holiday sales starting now. Actually, they started last month. Um, that people right. will will exit right this point.
0: Hey, Craig. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your insights into all things retail. Craig Johnson, President customer growth partners. He joins us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. Again, uh, they are looking for a 5.5% year-over-year increase in retail sales this year based upon a liquid consumer.